Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Good day, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Our chance to look back on and try to make some sense of the big political news of the week with three of our top political reporters. Well, President Biden actually dominated the news this week on both the domestic and foreign fronts. He scored big news on the economy, with dreaded inflation almost disappearing. And on the world stage, he achieved one goal by welcoming Finland as the newest member of NATO won Turkey's approval to add Sweden as a NATO member later this year, and convinced all NATO nations to save a seat for Ukraine as soon as the war with Russia is over. Meanwhile, here at home, Iowa evangelicals hold a cattle call for 2024 Republican presidential candidates this weekend, all of whom promise to show up, except the frontrunner, Donald Trump. And Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues his one-man war against the Pentagon, holding up over 250 military promotions. And by the way, the Secret Service wrapped up its investigation of that bag of cocaine left at the White House without identifying any suspect. Well, all of that and a lot more for today's panel to help us sort out. So let's say hello to Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Morning, Bill. Uh, Maya King joining us uh, back from uh, the New York Times, political politics reporter covering the South for the New York Times. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. And thanks also and welcome back to Zach Cohen, Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. Hello, Zach. Hey, Bill. So uh, let's hard not to start with the president today. Uh, so Jeff, uh, Joe Biden, he uh, went off and met the king. He went up to NATO, welcomed a new member and got approval for yet another new member, uh, brought them together on Ukraine, and then back home learns that inflation is down to the point of where it's almost non-existent. You'd have to say, Jeff, for Biden, he had a good week. Yes. Uh, however, this comes with a caveat. Yeah. Um, he also had a pretty darn good summer of 2022. And did his poll numbers move at all in the summer of 2022? They did not. Uh, so this is the question that I am focused on throughout summer and fall is do these victories, and these are two big victories, you're right, one on the foreign policy front, one on the domestic policy front, especially if people start to see uh, the price of eggs going down and the price of gas going down. Um, does this news redound to his benefit? Um, it seems like, uh, and Biden has even acknowledged this, he says the, that his policies poll very, very well, but 
when you attach his name to these policies, they seem to do less well among <laughs> among voters, being his 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 age or people's familiarity with him. They're sick of him. I whatever the case may be, um, his numbers really haven't budged. Uh, they're, they're up maybe a couple points this year. He was down to 39 or so in the averages at one point, and now he's still in his normal range of, of 41, 42. Obviously, by the time the, the election rolls around next year, uh, to be in a, in, in a good uh, fight, to have a good fighting chance, as a, an incumbent, you want to be at least above 45, if not skipping mm-hmm. 50. Uh, so uh, I'm looking at whether he's going to get there. Yeah. Well, um, Maya, I want to get your take on that, too, in terms of the political impact of this. But first, uh, let's listen. Here is the president in Vilnius, um, Latvia, um, Lithuania, I guess, rather, where uh, he's talking about Ukraine, saluting the Ukrainian people, but also um, kind of saluting Americans for standing by Ukraine. Here's uh, President Biden on that trip this week. We pursued an intense diplomacy with Russia, seeking to avert this terrible war. And when Russia bombs began to fall, we did not hesitate to act. We rallied the world to support the brave people of Ukraine as they defend their liberty and their sovereignty with incredible dignity. about what they're doing. After nearly a year and a half of Russia's forces committing terrible atrocities, including crimes against humanity, the people of Ukraine remain unbroken. So I guess you could say, Maya, a good job rallying uh, the nations of NATO to stand behind Ukraine and the American people. Does it make any difference politically back here at home? What's your read? Well, I think I think Jeff touches on something really important here because it's true that the Biden administration's uh, policies have been pretty popular without his name on it. And I think that that's what this White House has had to contend with, especially heading into an election year, is how they message uh, the policies that people actually like and, uh, and tie them to this president who's running for re-election and also still be able to build the same vast coalition um, that they built in 2020, a coalition, of course, that was powered by, um, you know, COVID, I think a lot of uh, frustration with the Trump administration. And now you have a lot of frustration, maybe not the same kind, but still uh, some ruffled feathers among voters uh, feeling like, yes, this administration has done quite a lot. But when I talk to folks, especially on the ground in places like Georgia and even South Carolina, I keep hearing this phrase of tangible help that they really can't feel it on the ground. Um, Hmm. But Biden's message uh, and sort of rallying, I think, around Ukraine is important because we've started to hear, of course, domestically, particularly on the right, a lot of uh, suspicion of just how much money and support now is going towards Ukraine. And I feel like that was a message that one, you know, underscores that the Biden administration and that that Biden will continue to support that country. But also, um, you know, I think it was a nod and sort of one way of um, reinforcing confidence among voters and people domestically that it is a good choice to do that. Well, Zach, uh, on your front, uh, the this issue of Ukraine uh, has been raised, as my indicated, by some Republicans in the House saying Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and others, it's time to cut off or to limit our funding for Ukraine. So how is this playing uh, in the Congress, and doesn't it put Kevin McCarthy in kind of a tight spot? 
Yeah, just last night, in fact, there was a vote uh, in the House uh, brought by uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia to cut off uh, security assistance to Ukraine, uh, just on the heels even of uh, the president actually expanding that aid with the delivery of these cluster bombs, which we could talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Um, but that amendment vote failed pretty spectacularly. It only gained about 70 votes. But, you know, 70 votes in the House of Representatives is a significant block. Uh, and especially as Congress is debating the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual military policy bill that has to pass by the end of the year, that's going to have a significant uh, way on the degree to which they can actually provide that funding. That will probably become in, in the way of a, a supplemental bill at some point later this year if, in fact, the U.S. and Ukraine find that uh, Kiev does need that extra support. Well, what about, uh, Zach, these amendments to the um, NDAA that uh, that Republicans did pass, though? Um, the abortion amendment, I, um, I forget what the others are. Uh, could they possibly derail what is usually an overwhelming bipartisan support to, for the military budget? Yeah, that's right. The, the House is voting today on this annual military policy bill. Normally, it passes in pretty bipartisan fashion. You know, it's passed the Congress uh, with bipartisan support for the last 60 years and counting, mostly because, you know, not just that it sets troop pay and, and increases troop pay, uh, but it also sets military policy for the next year, obviously an important marker, given the fact that Ukraine is still uh, battling this invasion from Russia more than a year on tensions are ratcheting up in China, especially vis-a-vis Taiwan. And so both parties see this bill as really an important must-pass piece of legislation. But the House last night, very late last night, added language uh, that some Democrats are balking at uh, and are opposing the bill exactly for uh, adding them. They, for instance, uh, block the Defense Department from offering military members and their families time off, uh, travel allowances to seek abortions in the cases where the Pentagon can't provide that kind of care, uh, stopping health insurance for sex reassignment surgeries for transgender people, curtailing various DEI initiatives in the Pentagon, uh, stopping DOD from uh promoting quote-unquote race-based theories, all of these things have sort of been culture war items that Republicans have been particularly focused on, especially since winning the House uh, back in in November. And so it really is kind of a key question now of whether what is normally a very bipartisan bill can actually get across the finish line, given the fact that it still needs the support of the Senate, where both Democrats and Republicans have a significant say in how it's crafted, as well as obviously uh, the White House and and President Biden's signature. Right. So, Jeff, um, on the military front, uh, one of these amendments that was passed of course, in, in, in the House reflects what Senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, has been doing in the Senate, hold, putting a one-man hold. It's amazing that one senator can do that, but they can. A one-man hold on any military promotion so that, for example, the Marines right now don't have a new commandant because uh, Tommy Tuberville have, is blocking it. Doesn't that put the Republican Party in a kind of a, the pro-military Republican Party in kind of a tough spot? Well, this figures into something I was also going to say about uh, Biden's trip, yeah. where it is the Democrat who is offering the most clearly Reagan-esque foreign policy. Here. <laughs> it, yeah. it, really, yeah. it is a sign of our topsy-turvy politics. Um rallying the West against Russia, pledging that Ukraine can get all the weapons it needs, offering this robust robust defense of freedom. Um, Meanwhile, you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene doing her thing. You've got Trump saying he's going to negotiate an end to the war in 24 hours. Uh, He's pledged to pull out of NATO in the past. And then that leads us into Tommy Tuberville, Um, which is the whole thing is a little bit bizarre. 
He first complains that no one wants to negotiate with him. Then Secretary Austin offers to have a call, and he first rebuffs it, saying he doesn't have any time to talk to him, uh, either this week or over the weekend. Finally, he relents. They have a call. They're going to talk again next week. Um, But bigger picture, Tuberville also now seems to be playing the same game that many House Republicans are playing, which is to say, given how small the margins are in, in Congress, in both houses of Congress, narrower than they've than they've been in decades, a, an individual member has a lot of power to muck things up if they really want to. Uh, holds on nominations, demanding amendments, um, voting no on must-pass legislation. You know, all this stuff, it's a little easier in the Senate, obviously, but uh, in the House too, you know, all this stuff doesn't happen if you have a 30, 40 seat majority. It's the kind of stuff that happens when you have a right. five seat majority. Mm-hmm. Right. So Maya, uh, obviously Democrats in the Senate have made this a big issue. Uh, none more so than a member, former member of the military herself, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois here speaking about her Alabama colleague. The entire military readiness is slowly grinding to a halt, and it is going to get worse every single day because Senator Tuberville has injected politics into this. He's fundraising off of his hold on the military leadership that is affecting the national security of this country. In fact, my I think the Times, it was the Times this week that reported that Senator Tuberville is successfully fundraising off of this and becoming more and more popular among conservatives, particularly in the South. You cover the South for the New York Times. What do you see? I think we've gotten to know way too much about what's on the mind of Tommy Tuberville this week. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it does seem to be part of the playbook now that you sort of throw fire, you maybe cause some issue or some commotion in Washington, and then you take you know, a portion of that message back to your constituents who are just happy to see a fighter. I think Republican voters are just happy to see a fighter, whether it's to their benefit or not um, in Washington. But also, of course, what's what I think it's important to note, you know, what the senator is, is saying is the reason why he's holding this up, um, because these are a lot of culture war issues really that animate, I think, the base of Republican voters right now around trans health care, women's health care, or specifically a seeking an abortion um, and other items like that, that I think have just caused quite a headache for Democrats, but again, have perhaps been, you know, a rallying cry for him. And the reason why I also say we've just heard so much, you know, about what's on his mind is we can't, I think it's important to mention his comments about uh, white supremacists earlier mm-hmm. this week and how he danced around outright saying that white supremacy is racism and that white supremacists do believe that the white race is uh, uh, better than any other race. I mean, this interview with Caitlin Collins was was really telling, I thought, just because he had at that Indeed. point such yeah. a hard time. Uh, being able to outright disavow white supremacy, particularly in the military. Of course, he went back and he walked it back and in a statement sort of clarified his views. But at that moment, it really did send a message. And it's not the first time that Senator Tuberville has um, had some, you know, prejudiced words, I will say, for um, uh, on in public spaces like this. And Zach, what I wonder is if uh, if this senator is able to, in a sense, paint the Republican Party as being anti-Pentagon, holding up CBS News reported this week by the end of the year, it could be 650 
military promotions. Why doesn't Mitch McConnell step in and, and just bring these things to a vote? He could do that, couldn't he? Yeah, no, and, and certainly even Senate Majority Leader Schumer, if he wanted to, could you know spend all of August recess confirming these nominees. It would take about a month uh, to do it, but obviously that's a, that's a lot of floor time in the Senate that doesn't have a lot of it nowadays. The real issue is that you know Schumer and and especially Democrats generally don't want to create this new precedent where you're going to give in to the demands of right. uh, of a senator to you know, work through the holds, especially when it comes to the military. We've seen this over time where senators will increasingly do this little issue blanket holds and object to any unanimous consent agreement to either confirm or schedule votes on nominees uh, in, you know, the Department of Justice or uh, the Department of Defense. Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, did this uh, after the, the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. But the military has been seen as something that's been a little more bipartisan in the past and hasn't really been faced with this kind of partisan backlash, but Republicans have been pretty quiet about Senator Tupperville's move, uh, other than trying to get some language into the NDAA, that military policy bill we were talking about earlier, trying to roll back this abortion policy that Tupperville is fighting to begin with, basically this this Pentagon policy that allows them to pay for travel allowances for service members seeking abortions. The House has voted to add it, um, mm-hmm. but the Senate hasn't done that. And so uh, it's this is really a, a, another indication of sort of the one-way ratchet of uh, partisan politics in the Senate, and it's really kind of unclear where it goes from here. Uh, before we move on from uh, from what was happening in the Congress this week, a couple of other uh, items. Um, so, Jeff, uh, the Hunter Biden attempts to go after Hunter Biden on the part of Rep- House Republicans, which they promised to to do with a vengeance once they had control of the House, and they still continue to try to do so. Um, ran into a, a little speed bump this week, right? When uh, we found out more about their key witness, the whistleblower, who said he's got the goods on Hunter Biden. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. Um, federal prosecutors unsealed this indictment on Monday of uh, Gal Luft, a joint Israeli-U.S. citizen who's the head of, a, uh, of some nondescript think tank. Uh, charging him with illicit arms trafficking, violating Iran sanctions and some other charges. Uh, He was arrested in Cyprus and was going to be extradited uh, about five months ago, and then he fled from authorities. Now, you would think this is only a problem for Luft, but it is, in fact, also a problem for House Oversight Committee Chair James James Comey, sorry, not Comey, uh, Comer, uh, as well. Being that Comer pegged Luft as one of his key informants with incriminating info on the Biden family. Right. You would think that this would make the Republicans stand down a bit. Uh, in fact, you'd, you'd be wrong. <laughs> um, they um, immediately uh, accused law enforcement agencies of, of orchestrating these charges, saying that this was all mm-hmm. a, a big conspiracy to, to quash their witnesses and block their investigation. Uh, the only problem was, again, the charges were were filed uh, last year before the midterm elections, before any of this was was known. So the, yeah. the timeline does not exactly work out in their favor. Uh, the other thing, uh, I want to come back, Zach, come back to you for a second here. In, in the House this week that I thought was unusual, uh, Republicans holding a hearing basically to go after the FBI, the pro-law enforcement uh, Republican Party, 
taking on FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was actually appointed, remember, by Donald Trump. Here is uh, Congresswoman Harriet Hagerman uh, from Wyoming, uh, who has this tense little exchange with the FBI Director. The American people fully understand that there is a two-tier justice system that has been weaponized to persecute people based on their political beliefs and that you have personally been weapon, that you have personally worked to weaponize the FBI against conservatives. Well, first off, I would disagree with your characterization of the FBI and certainly your description of my own approach. Uh, the idea that I'm biased against conservatives, uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. Yeah. Hard to dispute his conservative credentials, but this is a, a strange turn of events, Zach. Yeah, and especially over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen uh, Republicans try to peg the Democratic Party with trying to defund the police, and then there are literally calls within the House Republican Conference to defund the FBI. Uh, most of this around the new uh, headquarters uh, somewhere in either Maryland or Virginia, which uh, I'll get to in a second. Uh, but look, it gets it. The House Republican Conference has you know, made a key as a key part of its agenda, pointing out, quote unquote, weaponization of the federal government. And the FBI is a key part of that, not the least of which, because uh, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, had his Florida state uh, at Mar-a-Lago raided by the same FBI when he allegedly now in federal charges um, uh, mishandled classified documents. And there's a whole host of other issues. The Hunter Biden investigation is obviously one of them. Uh, and Republicans mm-hmm. are eager to sort of use their bully pulpit here to make sure if they you know, can't, you know, if they're not able to pass bipartisan legislation, at least use the, the, the public uh, ability of Congress to raise an issue and raise oversight and try to weaken Democrats ahead of 2024. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so on the political front, uh, Iowa lining up the Republican presidential no- uh, candidates uh, this weekend, uh, we'll get into that. My King, stand by. I want to get your take on why Donald Trump can get away with not showing up after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable with Jeff Dufer and Mike King and Zach Cohen. And today's recorder's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by SAG AFTRA. Yeah, I want to salute my brothers and sisters from SAG AFTRA who voted this week to join the 11,000 film and TV writers who were already on strike against the big Hollywood studios. I'm a longtime member of SAG after it's a great union providing great benefits for its members. Uh, and I'm proud that SAG after has voted in solidarity to join the striking members of the writers guild. Uh, if you want to know what this strike is all about, check out the, our, our website, sagaftra.org, sag, S-A-G-A-F-T-R-A, sagaftra.org. And we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable, uh, Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Zach Cohen from Bloomberg Government, and Maya King from the New York Times. Yep, the evangelicals in Iowa, Maya bringing all the Republican candidates together this weekend with the big no-show Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump so strongly ahead in the primary count that he doesn't have to show up for these cattle calls? Well, that certainly seems to be the case. And I know his campaign seems to believe that too. I was just looking up at the break um, 
a story that uh, we wrote at the Times from an April event in Iowa hosted by the Faith and Freedom Coalition, kind of a similar setup as what we're going to see this weekend. Very conservative evangelical voters in Iowa kind of taking a look at the the candidate pool, the Republican primary field. Um, And uh, former President Trump skipped that gathering, too. He, I think, sent in a video that got way more applause than anybody who actually showed up. Um, So it goes to show you that at least at that point, it was very, very clear he still, um, even in that small gathering, had a hold on a majority of the people they planned to support him again. And I think the same is true at this stage, too. Um, He's only been more bolstered by recent indictments. Um, They've only improved his standing with many in the Republican Party or at least base voters. And I think it's been a hard uh, couple of weeks for a number of his um, opponents to walk this line between seeming very conservative, making sure that they, you know, uh, speak or that they, you know, underline their support for Trump's policies, but also try not to alienate uh, his supporters and try not to actually say out loud that he, that they believe he's not the best choice um, for that, for the party in 2024. Uh, I mean, we'll see. I think, I think that that could be a very similar, you know, message this weekend. In fact, Chris Christie is the only one who's speaking op- out openly against Trump with you know, kind of more and more passion every day, it seems. But, uh, Jeff, it wasn't supposed to be this way, right? By this time, Ron DeSantis was supposed to have knocked Donald Trump off his throne. Yeah, the, the one thing DeSantis has going for him is a lot of money, and that's about it at this point. Um, mm. the, the, the shine, it didn't take very long for the shine to, to wear off. Um, I think the one thing we need to keep in mind is Iowa caucus goers are going to be especially receptive to this this Trumpist message and also on the issue of abortion um, with the six-week ban that that Kim Reynolds is is going to sign, uh, I think, today. Uh, They're going to be receptive to that. Iowa caucus goers are significantly more conservative than even your average GOP voter. Um, probably even in your average Iowa Republican, the people who show up at these events and show up at the caucuses are 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 quite conservative, um, mostly evangelical, and that that figures into everything we're talking about here. Um, I don't see DeSantis or one of these other candidates able to break out in this in, in this kind of environment. I think you learn a lot more. Some of these voters, and especially in this current moment with Trump, you learn a lot more from from focus groups sometimes and you do from polls. And I listened to a focus group a couple of weeks ago with some some Iowa Republicans, and they really articulated how they feel about the indictments. Uh, the indictments, they said, they, quote unquote, take it personally, uh, that this was a, a, a shot not just at Trump, but on on them. Uh, Mm-hmm. It, speaks, it speaks to how Trump says, you know, this isn't just about me. I'm standing up for you. Uh, they, they buy that. And this is why Trump has, has shot up from, let's say, 35 40% up to 50% since the indictments came out. Well, Zach, as much as, you can, as one could criticize Donald Trump for not joining uh, the rest of the field, uh, what I saw this week from Real Clear Politics doing the average of the national polls 
uh, Donald Trump was at 52.6% or something like that among uh, Republican primary voters. Ron DeSantis was down at 20, and everybody else was down, you know, 5, 6, 1, 2%. Hey, if I were Donald Trump, I wouldn't show up either, right? Right. The only difference is that we don't have a national primary in this country. It goes state by state. And so I think the, the yeah. goal here, especially for, you know, the DeSantis's of the world, uh, is to try to get as much momentum coming out of Iowa as possible and then going into you know, New Hampshire and South Carolina. Uh, and so we'll, we'll have to remember that uh, Trump didn't win Iowa in 2016 either. That was Senator Ted Cruz's victory, uh, much to yeah. then candidate Trump's chagrin. And Trump ended up winning anyway. Uh, the goal for DeSantis and others is to try to coalesce support behind one anti-Trump candidacy, because clearly it's Trump's nomination to lose. And if DeSantis can come out of the Iowa primary with a lot of momentum, maybe a couple of these other candidates drop out at some point, or maybe DeSantis fades and someone else you know, wins the Iowa mantle. Uh, Iowa doesn't have a great track record for predicting the eventual nominee <laughs> in, either both, in both party, but it really can change the, the trajectory of the race. And that's what uh, these other candidates are really banking on right now. Right. I remember Rick Santorum winning, uh, right? And uh, Mike Huckabee one time winning down in Iowa, too. Uh, People so, is not president, right? <laughs> exactly. So this weekend, also up in New Hampshire, a different kind of gathering, a group that call themselves No Labels. Joe Manchin is the keynote speaker, and their goal has been, uh, it was talked about by former uh, Republican member of Congress from Michigan, Fred Upton. Here's what they're trying to do. That's what we're shooting for, to actually have a Republican presidential candidate and a Democrat vice presidential candidate. Republican presidential, Democratic vice presidential. Is this thing going anywhere, Jeff? Um, it may be, and, uh, and Democrats are freaking out. Um, so the polling that they ran on this shows that without a third-party candidate, Biden leads Trump. 52 to 48. If you throw a third party candidate in there, uh, Trump leads Biden 40 to 39 with the independent taking the remaining 21%. Uh, similarly, in swing states, you see uh, the independent candidate getting 18% in Michigan, 28% in Arizona. Now, I think those numbers are overstated. Remember in 2016, Gary Johnson was polling 15% in summertime. He ended mm -hmm. up on election day with about three and a half percent. Jill Stein got another one and a half, two percent. But that was still determinative in a couple of key states. Um, and no labels does not need to get 21 percent nationwide in order to be determinative in a couple of key states. Uh, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, among them. Uh, so there's if, if you're a Democrat, you have absolutely, you're, you're right to be concerned. Now, we get reports that Dick Gephardt is leading a, a group mm -hmm. to stop no labels. Now, how he's going to do that, I'm not sure. Uh, as we go into 2024, the, the quote-unquote haters are a key voting block. People who hate both candidates, if it's Biden and Trump, people who want nothing to do with either, uh, they are going to be looking for an alternative. They're going to be tempted by by a third party, if, if in fact there is one. And Maya, there's no doubt, I guess, uh, uh, is there, uh, listening uh, again to Jeff's numbers, that were there a third party candidate on the ballot, it would hurt Joe Biden more than it would hurt Donald Trump? 
I think that's right. And I think that's why Democrats are so frustrated and um, concerned about the possibility of a, of a viable third party candidate this time around. And I've, I'll add to that in addition to the haters, the people who you know, are uncomfortable with both candidates, you also have a fair amount of disaffected Democrats, I think, who are maybe not necessarily choosing between Democrat and Republican, but choosing between Democrat and staying home particularly um, a slice of black voters, I think, that are considering that. And I'm not sure that black voters writ large would, or even in any meaningful numbers, would vote third party. But mm-hmm. I do think that it's something to look out for that, you know, possibly the candidacy of someone um, like a no labels candidate or like a, a Cornell West, who is also yeah. running now um, under the Green Party, if they pose any real um, threat to Joe Biden, or if they just seem, you know, appealing, I think, to some of these voters who say, well, I'm really not interested in in supporting Biden this time, but maybe this guy is something different or just, you know, gives them a reason to turn out. Yeah. So, Zach, help us out. You see him, you talk to him. What the hell is Joe Manchin up to? (laughs) Senator Joe Manchin is obviously, yeah, the the key swing vote in the Senate and has been for a couple of years now. I mean, my, my big question, honestly, about if, if he does run for president, which he has continued to tease, uh, you know, publicly uh, and and hasn't said whether he will, in fact, run for reelection. But my big question is, if he, in fact, does run for president and does not run for reelection, uh, what that means for control of the Senate. Uh, and I was talking to um, Gary Peters, the, the Michigan Democrat, mm-hmm. who is chair of the Democratic campaign arm for uh, the Senate. And he said, look, if if Joe Manchin doesn't run, it's going to be very hard to hold his seat in 2024. And remember, Democrats only hold the Senate by one seat. They also lose the White House. Mitch McConnell is majority leader again. So I think Manchin is making a tough choice about around, you know, not just whether he can win re-election in, in West Virginia, where he's continued to lose support over the years. It's an increasingly conservative state. Um, and Joe Manchin obviously continues to cut a very independent cloth, but he still has a D after his name. And so I yeah. think he's looking at where can he continue his political legacy? Where can he continue to make a difference uh, on the national stage? Uh, he doesn't strike me as somebody that's ready to retire just yet. Right. Okay. Uh, that's a good look back at the week on the political front, on the uh, international front as well. And a big thank you to uh, today's panel, Jeff Dufer and Maya King and Zach Cohen. Uh, before we let you guys go into the weekend, uh, we always want to know what was the one story that kind of stopped you in your tracks this week, made you laugh or cry, or at least got your attention uh, more than it might have been something you were ca- covering or maybe not. Maya, start us off. Your favorite story of the week. Yeah, um, my favorite story was quite a talker in a number of, uh, of, of worlds. It's a page six story. Maybe you guys have, have read it as well. I'll just give you the headline. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner explodes in war of words and farting. Um, it it was it's a really fun and outrageous read about a press dinner that RFK Jr., who was also running for president as a Democrat, um, hosted earlier this week, and it just quickly devolved into uh, lots of yelling. Um, and screaming, but also, yes, uh, passing gas. I won't give away too much else because it's really, it's written so um, just delightfully, (laughs) the way that it's just, the way that these moments are all described. Um, But 
I, I would encourage folks to to go and check it out. It'll give you your laugh heading into the weekend for sure. Well, I got to tell you, I'm going to run to page six and check that out uh, as soon as we're finished here on the uh, on the roundtable. I hadn't seen I hadn't seen that story. Um, maybe this is emblematic of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign. I don't know. How about you, Jeff? What caught your attention? Uh, what caught my attention is sports washing. Uh, there was a hearing on Capitol Hill this week in the Senate about the uh, PGA Tour and Luke Golf. Merger. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But as uh, I'm, I'm going to let uh, Paul Kane from the Post uh, take it, he had a great piece on this. Um, he says that the subcommittee's hearing are missing the scope of what's happening before the eyes of American sports fans. Uh, and because I follow Premier League soccer, I know that um, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds have bought a number of teams in Great Britain, um, many cases taking them to, to great success. Um, but it is happening here in the United States in a way that, uh, that, that the members of Congress probably don't appreciate yet. Mm-hmm. Um, even in around here, uh, the City Open, which is our tennis tournament here in D.C., um, has been renamed the Mubadala City Open uh, because they are taking a lead sponsorship from the United Arab Emirates Sovereign Wealth Fund and uh-huh. uh, Mo- Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Caps and the Wizards, and maybe soon they own uh, the Nationals, uh, has sold a 5% stake in to the Qatar Investment Authority. So uh, this kind of money coming to our shores and investing in sports is um, is only going to get greater, not less. Mm. And and rather troubling, I find as well in terms of what we consider all American sports. Uh, more about that later, I guess. And Zach, um, what, what caught your attention particularly? I'm going to um, selfishly promote one of my colleagues here. That's uh, good. John Tamari uh, had a great profile of House Minor- Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries hmm. uh, this week that yeah, I, I think saw really that. captured uh, not just you know Jeffries' interesting position in Congress, but also an important thing to note in Congress generally as we've been wrapping up this conversation. Uh, there's an old adage that uh, leadership is followership. Uh, and I think Jeffries is uh, most transparently following that right now. He's somebody that's replacing, obviously, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi as the leader of the House Democrats and um, is, is cutting a very different cloth. I think Pelosi had this image of being real uh, iron-fisted with her caucus and really bending them to her will, and Jeffries does not really do that. You know, He's obviously new to the job. He doesn't want to alienate anybody. And so uh, I think it's an important uh, moment for him. You know, The House Democratic caucus doesn't really have a whole lot of power right now. So these two years offer Jeffries a really important moment to really consolidate his power, his influence among the House Democratic Caucus ahead of potentially mm-hmm. the his becoming the first black speaker in American history. Yeah, it has been it's been very interesting uh, watching Hakeem Jeffries grow into his role. I think, and I thought that uh, article really really summed it up. Well, I got to tell you, my, so for my favorite story as a Californian, I, I just love the story out of Santa Cruz, California. You know, big cities of this country today uh, we're worried about carjacking. Uh, the big problem in Santa Cruz, California, is board jacking. Uh, yes, it's somebody stealing surfboards, not somebody, but some animal. And the animal stealing surfboards is a five-year-old female otter. 
Uh, we think of otters as these cute little things that we see around Monterey and Santa Cruz. Um, but this otter uh, loves surfboards and <laughs> has actually been driving people crazy by climbing up on their surfboards, uh, riding a couple of waves on their surfboards, and then actually stealing their surfboards <laughs> to the point now that the California Fish and Wildlife is going to, they say, round up this otter and rehome her, is the phrase that they're using, move her to some other part of the coast. Uh, which I find is crazy. It seems to me <laughs> that if this otter is so good that the answer is clearly to get her her own surfboard <laughs> so she doesn't have to steal the surfboard of all the surfers out there. But it's uh, become a real problem in Santa Cruz, California. Her name, by the one, is just, they call her Os uh, Otter841. So I want to salute Otter841. Um, go catch a couple of good waves today. And that's it for today's podcast and today's round. So a great big thank you to uh, Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Maya King from the New York Times, and Zach Cohen from Bloomberg Government. And thanks to all of you for joining us on this Friday, July 14. We'll be back on Tuesday with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>